So I heard about a guy who um, was, he had a dream, and in this dream he was taken up to heaven, and one of the angels was giving him this grand tour of, of heaven, and he's looking around, and they get to this large warehouse, and they go into this warehouse, and, and the walls of this warehouse are lined with clocks, walls covered in clocks. And the guy goes around and starts looking at these clocks and realizes that there are names under each of these clocks. And each of these clocks are ticking at different paces and have different times and and are just so different from each other. But they all have this name. And he starts looking and he starts recognizing some of the names of his friends on these clocks. And he looks and looks trying to find his clock, the name on his clock. And he's looking, and he can't find it. And so he he asks the angel, where's my clock? What are these clocks for? And the angel says, "Well, well, these clocks track the sin in your life. And each time you sin, the clock revolves around the clock one time. The hand goes around once. So you sin, and the clock ticks around, and, and so everybody's at a different spot because they're sinning at different rates. And so the guy's, where is my clock? And the angel's like, oh, your clock. Your clock we put in the office to use as a fan. <laughs> so a different use of a clock there. So today we find ourselves in, in the story of someone who, who really has a good life, as someone who is after God's own heart, but someone whose life turned into a little bit of a fan for a while. We're in the story of David, where, where things go wrong. We're on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. We're using this resource called the story, where we get to see the big picture of God from, from beginning to end. And we get these highlighted stories. And we get to the story of David, and we get here something that looks like it could be ripped out of the headlines of a current newspaper. A big sex scandal. Some leader falls. Some leader is caught in something. There's a big cover-up, and it, it is all uncovered. But the story we have here is much older than the newspapers and certainly much more older than our social media that spreads these stories. This is a story that comes straight out of the Bible from years and years ago, a story that has repeated itself way too often. The story of David and his lust for Bathsheba. You know, we're going through the story, and we spent a little bit of time on David last week, and and we spend some time on David this week, and the next week we're moving on to Solomon. So we're not spending a lot of time on David. But if you look through Scripture, there are 69 chapters dedicated to the biography of David. There's more stories about David than any other character of the Old Testament, so he is a critical character as we go through these stories, but we just have to jump through it really quick. He's also mentioned 59 times in the New Testament, so David is an important character. David is one that we we base a lot on. He was one that had such high favor with God. And so the story begins in these words. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
This is a familiar story, right? We've, we've gone through this story of David and Bathsheba before. We're familiar with what happens. We've got a king who stays at home. He's not where he's supposed to be. He doesn't go out with his army. He stays home and lets others take care of the war. And he's restless one night, so he is wandering the rooftops, whatever that means. And so he's wandering the rooftops, and he sees a woman bathing on another roof, which seems strange as well, but here's the story that we have. A woman is bathing on a roof, and he's walking on a roof, and he sees this woman, and he sends somebody to go find out who she is. And she fi- he finds out that this is Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite's. And so Uriah is this interesting character that, that we know a little bit about because he's mentioned in other places as one of David's mighty men. David has this royal guard of his best soldiers. And these are his most trusted protectors. And Uriah is one of these. This is one of his bodyguards. Uriah is also a Hittite, which means he's not an Israelite, right? Which means he's a foreigner who has come to live in Israel and has converted to become a part of this nation. So he's an outsider who has come and devoted himself to being a part of Israel, even to the point of sacrificing his life to become one of David's bodyguards. His name means Yahweh is my light. Yahweh is my light. And here is Uriah out on the battlefield, and David finds out that this is Uriah's wife, and he sins for her anyway. He calls her in, and they have a one-night stand, and he gets the message I'm pregnant. And now David has a real problem on his hands because what was secret is no longer secret. There is now evidence for his indiscretion. And so this is his response. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Just a little bit of chit-chat. Hey, buddy, how's it going out there? And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So he tells him to go wash his feet, which really means go um, spend the evening with your wife. And so he sends him home to go get his wife pregnant. So now there's a reason for her pregnancy. But Uriah doesn't do that. Uriah decides to stay at the footsteps of the castle. He stays there at the entrance to the palace where all the servants are, and he is not willing to go home to be with his wife. So David finds out, and he calls Uriah. Um, he, he sends him home in hopes that this would happen. But he finds out that Uriah doesn't, and David asks why Uriah didn't take advantage of his time home. And it's frustrating to David. And Uriah responds with this. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife as surely as you live? I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem and the, and the day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants. There is no way Uriah is going to go home and enjoy a good meal and enjoy an evening with his wife. When the ark and all of his comrades are in battle, out on the battlefield, living in tents. He is not going to do that. He is going to do what is, is noble. He is going to do what is right. And too bad David didn't feel the same way when he was at home wandering the rooftops. David's sin was his preoccupation. And so now he is preoccupied with how to solve this problem, and he's not focused at all on the welfare of his troops. Too often for us, sin takes our focus off of the greater work and calling that God has for us. We become preoccupied with those sins, and it takes our focus off of where it needs to be. We spend more time trying to cover it up, spending more time trying to, to steer around it, trying to make sure that we don't get caught, that we lose sight of God's greater work for us. And Uriah is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. In Deuteronomy 23, it says that, that soldiers are not to have sexual relations even with their wife when it's wartime. And so not only is Uriah acting with integrity because he feels for, for the, the plight of the men on the field, but he is actually obeying the law. There's a law that says he can't do this. And so the integrity that Uriah is acting out of is not just for the relationship with the other soldiers. This is about his relationship with God, which means David is actually encouraging him to break the law. And so Uriah, even in his moment of being drunk, is still has more integrity than David. That he refuses to go home. He's staying where he's supposed to be. He's not going to where he's not supposed to be. He's doing what God has called him to do, and he's being obedient to that. David tries, and he tries, but the plan is not working. So he has to come up with yet another plan. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah on the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab in the city, um, so while Joab in the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And so now David's plan works. He's gotten rid of Uriah. He couldn't get Uriah to look like the father, so he's got to get rid of Uriah. And so Uriah carries his own death sentence with him, commanding that he be put on the front line. This is one of David's best. This is one of his trusted, mighty men. And David is willing to sacrifice him on the front lines to cover up his sin. 
Their plan works. Uriah is killed. And after a time of mourning, David sends for Bathsheba and brings her in. And she becomes his wife. And it isn't long before she gives birth to a child. Now, as you read through these stories, just like so many of the other stories we've gone through, it seems like all this is pretty quick, right? So one day, David and Bathsheba do their thing. The next day, they're pregnant. Next day, Uriah dies. Next day, she comes in, and they're married and have the baby. You know, it, it all fit, seems like it's this compact story. But when you really look at the, the story, this is really more of about a one-year process. This is one year that David has been working this cover-up story. This sending back and forth to the front lines, this going through times of mourning, this going through a full pregnancy. And so by the time Bathsheba gets to be married with David, it's most likely that people thought this was Uriah's son anyway. She was way too pregnant by the time she moved in for it to be David's son, so surely Uriah did go home that night. And so we have this cover-up that's working so far. And the narrative ends with this fateful line. <laughs> but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Wow, is that an understatement? The thing David did. Like it's this little thing, right? If you, depending on how you look at it, he broke six of the ten commandments in this time. This is not the thing that David did. The thing that David did was putting someone else before God. He puts himself. He commits adultery. He covets his neighbor's wife. He steals another man's wife. He deceives and he murders not just Uriah, but the other people that were put into this battle for this cover-up. And so the thing that David does, yes, it does displease the Lord. And his clock is now a fan. And so the story could end there. We've seen this story over and over and over as we've gone through each of these different chapters where, where somebody sins and falls. And, and if it's somebody like Saul, like we talked about last week, he is bitter and he is angry and he does not turn from this sin. But we have the story of David and God steps in to redeem this. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it starts, The Lord sent Nathan to David. God is stepping in. Something has to be fixed here. And so he steps in, he sends Nathan, and Nathan comes to David and tells him this wonderful story of a, of a rich man who has a large number of sheep, and he's going to throw a party, but he doesn't want to use any of his sheep. So he goes to his poor neighbor and takes the one and only family pet sheep and takes that and brings it home and sacrifices it for his party and, and cooks this up for his guests. And David hears this story of this selfish rich man and he becomes angry and he says, that, that man deserves death for what he's done. That man deserves death. And Nathan utters these words, you are that man. You are that man. You're the one who went to your neighbor and stole. You are the one who deserves death. This sentence that you have just uttered for this rich man. And Nathan continues, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you as king over Israel 
And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And, it all, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. I've given you everything. Everything you've wanted and even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. God says, I gave you everything. This is in in the peak of your reign as king. You were on top of the world. Things are going great. You're David, the king And you despised me. And you went and sinned against me. And so this sword is coming to your house. This punishment, this consequence is coming here and it's never going to leave your house. David has been caught. The cover-up is over. Everything unravels and he has to face his sin. How does he respond? Does he respond like Saul with a bunch of excuses? Oh, it was them. It wasn't really me. We were going to do the sacrifice thing or whatever his excuses were. No, it's not going to be Saul. David's response is different. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I'm caught. I've sinned. I've messed up. He takes ownership of his sin I've sinned against the Lord. And it's about this time that we think Psalm 51 was written. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And he finishes it out with, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It must have been incredible when David later heard the words from Nathan in chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. What relief to know that he is at the very bottom, that he does not deserve anything, that he has sinned against God, and that any verdict is justified. Any punishment is justified because he has sins. And he hears these words, the Lord has taken away your sins. This is amazing. All of that. David was a disaster. And we don't know how long it took David to really embrace and understand this idea that he had been forgiven. Maybe it was in that moment, maybe it was days or years where he, he was finally re- able to, to understand this forgiveness that he had received. But he talks about it in Psalm 32. 
Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin, and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. God is now David's hiding place. He doesn't have to hide his sin in some dark place. He now hides in the presence of God where all things are known and all things are forgiven. Even though he had spent the year trying to cover things up, he had been trying to hide his sin, he comes in and is resting in God's presence. When facing our sin and confessing it, we're actually putting it in the one place where it can be covered. We don't cover it up with our own stuff. We cover it up with the grace of God. His grace covers that. And so we, we rest in that. That we, we confess that and we send that sin over and God hides that. He takes that. The story of David and Bathsheba, this is a dark chapter for David. Such, such an incredible life. So many stories, story after story, where he is the hero. And then we get to this dark chapter. But this is not a story about David's sin. This is a story about David's restoration. David is restored. That's the moral of the story. It's not about David's sin. It's about the redemption that comes through confession. There's a few observations here. One is, at the heart of the problem of sin is the problem of the heart. At the heart of the problem with sin is the problem of the heart. As David prays in Psalm 51, there are two major moves of that psalm. The first nine verses, David asks God to forgive him of his sins. But then in the final, final two verses, David asks God for a transformation of his heart. I've sinned. I've messed up. Forgive me. But it doesn't stop there. God, I want you to create something new in me. I want you to transform me. I don't want you just to erase this mess up. I don't want you just to forget about this sin. I want you to change me. Make something new in me. Make me a different person. Transform my heart. David is not just interested in his sins being forgiven. He's interested in his heart being transformed. And he's praying for his sin to be pardoned, but he's also praying for a heart to be purified. He's not just praying to be free from the punishment of sin, but he prays to be free from the power of that sin. 
David knew that it was the lust of his heart that had led to this sin. It was a heart issue that got him down this road. And he knew that his heart had to be transformed. He knew that at the heart of the problem of sin is the problem of the heart. And so how often do we actually pray for God to transform our hearts? We get to some place where we, we realize that we are wrong. We realize that we've sinned. We realize that we've made a mistake. And so we pray for forgiveness. We, we confess that. But do we take that extra step and pray for a transformation of the heart? That it's not just about the sin that I've committed, but the heart that led me into that sin to begin with. And so as we approach our confession, as we look at the sin that's in our lives, as things creep in, we need to look at what the heart issue is behind that. And we pray for God to transform the hearts, that he creates something new in us. To ask God for a pure heart is to ask him to enable us to crave what he craves, to desire what he desires, to love what he loves, to dream what he dreams, to laugh what he laughs, to desire what he desires, to weep over what he weeps over. We want to be like God. We want to reflect him. And so we ask God to transform our hearts into that. Another observation as we look at this restoration of David is that God's forgiveness restores us into right relationship with him, but it doesn't erase the consequences of our actions. Forgiveness is about our relationship with God. And we receive forgiveness, and that brings us back into right relationship with him, but that does not necessarily erase the consequences of those sins. Those consequences may still be there. And we, we know, reading through the rest of the story, that David's life was pretty rough from here on out. That he continued, even though that he had received this forgiveness from God, he continued to receive the consequences of the sin that he had. He experienced that forgiveness, but those earthly consequences are set into motion. He and Bathsheba would lose their first child. His daughter was raped. His son Absalom mounts a rebellion against him and then dies. And then it's followed by another attempt of rebellion. The sword does not leave his house. And he continues to face these consequences. But instead of looking at those consequences as an opportunity to be bitter at God, he, he walks through those. And he stands firm in his faith in God. We can be forgiven, but we can still have the scars of those sins. A final observation is because of God's grace, there can be life beyond the early consequences of our sin. And we see this in David. There can be life beyond this. Even though there are consequences, God's grace gives us life. And so, even if there are consequences, we can walk through those consequences. As we read through the story of David, we find that David and Bathsheba find life beyond the scars that they've received. They did lose a son, but they have another son. And David isn't bitter and angry. He, he moves through those. And God continues to bless them, even in the midst of these consequences. They have another son, a son named Solomon 
who would continue the lineage of David as king of Israel. And this is how amazing the grace of God is, this gift that we receive, that even in this dark chapter of David's lower story, God is still working in this upper story. That even in the midst of David's sin and the, the bad decisions that he's made and, and the, the, the consequences that continue to roll out because of that, God is still at work writing his big upper story. And so Solomon comes along and Solomon continues to lead. And who shows up in the lineage of Jesus? Bathsheba. Shows up in Matthew chapter 1, one of only a few women that's mentioned. And there is this big upper story that we see that this great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus is Bathsheba. And so even in the midst of our consequences, the grace of God brings life. Our worst chapters don't have to be our final chapters. Our worst chapters are not our final chapters. That even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of mistakes, even in the midst of rejecting God, we come back to God, we surrender to Him, we get on our knees, and we confess that to Him, and we receive grace and forgiveness. He is standing there waiting for us. And so on any given Sunday, there are people here who come into church who have messed up at some point in their life. There are stories here of, of infidelity, of addiction, of mistakes that have been made. And you, and you come into this place and you have that past, you've got that dark, that dark chapter, but God has redeemed that. And so now we're in places of teaching, in places of mentoring, in places where God is using that story to minister to others. That the story of adultery can be a story of redemption. The story of addiction is a story of redemption. A story of mistakes, a story of hurts, a story of brokenness can be used. Can be used by God in such incredible ways. If God can redeem somebody who has done something so incredible, that thing that David did, if, so, if, if, if God can redeem what David did, then he can redeem anything that we've gone through, any mistake that we've made. He can restore that. And so imagine now what God can do when he takes your dark chapter and uses that for his story. Let's stand. God calls us. God calls us into his kingdom to be active participants in his kingdom. And we stumble and we fall and we make those mistakes, but he still wants us working in that kingdom. And so he wants to take whatever it is that is not right whatever it is that is broken, and he wants to restore that. He wants to heal that. He wants to make that new. He wants to create in you something new. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer.
And this is a time for us to confess to one another. This is a time for us to, to pray for the hurts and the brokenness in our lives. It's, it's time to, to pray with one another about celebrations and victories, that we've overcome something, and we want to share that as a testimony to others. If, if we have journeyed through something, this is an opportunity for us to pray over somebody who's, who's going through that journey now. It's an opportunity for us to encourage one another. But however you would like to engage, praying with one another, praying as a couple, we have shepherds that will be down front. You can pray with them. Let's spend this time with God as we, as we sing this new song. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the story of David. We're, we're grateful for, um, in, in a way, we're grateful for his mistakes so that we can learn from them. Because we learn about your grace, we learn about your love because of his mistakes. And so God, we open up this time of prayer to you now. We confess to you that we're not perfect. And we go through dark chapters. And God, we, we pray that you will redeem that for good that you will continue to rewrite those chapters in our lives to honor you, to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.